If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. We are the brothers, both DMs and players. I'm the boy with the Kraken tattoo, Travis. And I'm the one that gets that reference, Jordan. <laughs> Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. Jabbing your walkie with that snickersnack sword for incredible games. That's going to that's going to be forever? Uh, I don't know. It's a it's a cool D&D reference to a Vorpal sword, but okay, okay, true. All right. We'll keep workshopping that tagline. Today, we have a very special guest that we are super excited to have on the podcast. He's the founder of uh, some extra noteworthy subreddits, D&D Behind the Screen, DM Academy, and DM Toolkit, and so many others. You probably recognize him um, as the moderator and founder of many of those. Yeah, he's all over them. Uh, he's created a gargantuan body of work. He's been writing D&D fiction for a long time. He's got tons of DM advice, player advice, lots of blogs, posts, and articles. And people have said, this is the best thing that has ever happened to me of his posts. Uh, yeah. So if that doesn't say something. Life-changing. Another one is, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What was that on? Uh, one of his Reddit posts. <laughs> <laughs> Simple enough. Every average Reddit post gets, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever Every seen. Every single one. <laughs> um, so yeah, happy to introduce him. He is known as Famous Hippopotamus. And we're going to get to know him a little bit. First in the hero's stage. Then we're going to get into how he writes his campaigns with a real sandbox approach in Morden's Forge. And we're going to finish off by tackling some of the biggest problems that happen when you sit down with a bunch of people at the D&D table in Strategy Stateroom. Awesome. Well, let's get to it. On we go. This is the Hero Stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. Hi, Hippo. Thanks for joining us on the show Thanks for having me, guys. You have a rap sheet about as long as my arm, as they say, and it's <laughs> like... No problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's quickly rattle through some of those. You've created a massive amount of resources on your uh, Reddit posts and your WordPress site. You do one-on-one -on -one DM advice calls now, which is awesome. That's got to be adding a lot to your day. Uh, you moderate a huge number of subreddits, including the few that you've already founded. And you take care of your own Patreon site, which has a lot of content available there as well. And it's recently exploded. So with all of this attention and all of these things that you're doing with your day, uh, we've calculated that roughly to be about 36 to 38 hours a day. When do you actually have time to play D&D? Um, well, I've, so the last time I was, before I left Australia, I was running a campaign, um, it ended at fourth level, which felt right at the time. 
Um, and I, when I got back, I was like, you know, I was trying to find a job and, and trying to deal with my family and stuff. And um, I got into a few different games as a player because I kind of wanted to dip my toes into 5e because I haven't played that much of it. Uh-huh. Um, and I kept dropping groups because they just weren't right for me because I'm, I'm not. I'm, I've been playing for so long that I can sort of tell when the group's not really for me. So I don't. I don't waste their time. I don't waste mine. And then I ran a few one shots here and there. And then a friend of mine and I uh, were gonna do a solo campaign. So I ran the third session of that last night. Oh. Uh, we played for about six hours. Um, that's going about once a month. Let's touch on your homebrew world. Sure. Tell us a little bit about uh, Drexler. So <clears throat> Drexler. Um, so I grew up in Greyhawk. Um, but the Greyhawk map was was rich and deep, and there was a lot of stuff on it. And I was my friend had it pinned in his basement. I, was, I used to go look at it all the time. Like, man, I would love to have a world like this. So I hadn't played D and D for probably a year and a half, two years. And a friend of mine said, "Hey, we should play some D and D." I'm like, "Fuck yeah, man! It's been forever since I played. Let's play." And he's like, "I'll DM." I'm like, "Cool." So we played, and he's like, "I suck. Why don't you DM?" I'm like, "All right." So I literally started with a sheet of graph paper. I drew five blobs and I just put like dots where cities would be and I drew in the rivers and I named the five continents and that's where I started. And now, you know, 28 years later or whatever, I've got way too much stuff for this place. We've got like over a hundred hand drawn maps. I've got two big of the, those two big plastic crates just full of loose paper of stuff I've written, <laughs> uh, whole notebooks on. I have one city called New Cybar that I wrote, you know, I wrote an entry in hand for every single shop. It fills up the whole five subject notebook. Um, you know, I was young. I, I liked to smoke cannabis and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I got very creative and uh, spent a lot of time fleshing stuff out. And I wanted a persistent world because I love this idea of of the party goes and does something in, like, say, a dungeon. I have a classic example of where this actually happened. A party went through this dungeon and they had a bag of devouring and they took every door off the hinges and fed it into the bag because they just were, oh, they were paranoid about doors. I made them paranoid about doors anyway. <laughs> and they, and they, you know, they scratched some graffiti on the walls, and they end up getting killed by the banshee who lived in the castle. And then three years later, had another party who wanted to try and take on the banshee, and they went through her castle. And they f- were like, "Where are all the doors?" <laughs> and they found graffiti, and they found some old campsites. And I, you know, and they eventually, when I got back to town, they discovered that other people had been through the dungeon. And I told them outside the game that that was a real party that had gone through, and they were blown away by that. And I was like, that's what I want. I want a world because I know a lot of DMs change worlds every campaign, and that's cool. And I've started doing that now, too, so now that I've retired this place. But for me, I wanted that verisimilitude of what you do matters and it resonates. And there's, there's markers in the world of, of where you've touched things. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. I love those moments where you, I don't know, either as a player or as a DM, where, yeah, you just have that realization that it does matter. What you've done in the past matters. I think that was one of the first just eye-opening moments for me in D&D where I was like, yep, I'm going to play this for a long, long time. <laughs> they, they can literally change the history of the world, which is really powerful. It's, it's almost magic, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This sounds like Stranger Things is basically a doc about your, your childhood, huh? <laughs> Minus the Demogorgon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, started playing, I started playing D&D in 1978, and... Um, Two girls were co-DMing this homebrew campaign. This is three years before Redbox Basic, mind you. I made a character named Eric the Cleric. Shut up, I was nine. <laughs> and he got. I found a gold statue of Aphrodite in a stream, and I got backstabbed by a kobold, and I died, and I was hooked for life. And I just, you know, I remember sitting in 
in sixth grade with a red book, red book, uh, rule book on my lap and getting in trouble because I just could not put it down. Like I just kept reading and reading and reading it. And I thought it was like the greatest game ever made. And I just never stopped basically. That's awesome. It's funny how similar everyone's early D and D experience is. And there's always that moment where you're just like, fuck it. I'm done. Like, this is me now. I'm a, I'm a D and D player. <laughs> yeah. I'm read yeah, every yeah, yeah. page of this yeah. book. Yeah. So when you're playing, um, or, or sorry, DMing, are you, so you're fairly new to 5e, but what are you, what are your thoughts so far? Uh, yeah, I've been probably playing really actively for about two years. Um, look, I like it. There's what I like. Part I'm still grumpy with the skill system. I've been grumpy with skills for a while. Um, you know, like it, the problem for me, and this is not a, a problem with the system. The problem for me is I've got I've got now nine editions of rules in my head, so I get really confused. Like I forget what's current. Yeah. If someone will mention a spell and be like, "Oh, it does this, this, and this," and like, "No, they've changed it." I'm like, "Oh, right, of course." So. I can't, I, I've discovered that I can't make any assumptions with 5e. So, so you're not you're not using one rule set per se. You're definitely uh, crossing the streams. Yeah, there's some blending in there. Like there's stuff I've kept from 4e. There's stuff I've kept from 2e. There's stuff that, you know. You just kind of pick up stuff, and if it works for you, you kind of keep it in your toolbox. So, yeah. like I love the bloodied condition. The bloodied condition in 4e that the monsters would get when they hit 50 percent like sometimes oh. you know a new power would trigger or something like that i've kept that because i thought it was a really cool idea so that's in my arsenal you know so all of these tips and tricks that you now share on reddit how did all of that get started my experience with reddit was i joined like four years ago and uh i eventually ended up on rdnd i hadn't played for a few years um i was like oh wow there's a dnd subreddit and i started posting and getting downvoted because i was a grumpy old grognard and uh, I realized that the game had changed and the community had changed and there was a whole, you know, there was t tens and hundreds of thousands of people out there talking about D&D. &D. And uh, I put up a post. I basically one night I was like, I'm going to take pictures of all my campaign stuff because I've been playing for ages. And I'll put it up on Reddit and we'll see what happens. So I took like 90 photos of my maps and things like that. And I uploaded it and I went to sleep and I woke up and there was like 800 comments. <laughs> wow. My wife at the time's like, what's going on? I'm like, it's gritted Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I answered like I, I answered everybody and, you know, people had lots of questions and stuff. And I've been posting a lot of like I put up a post called Let's Build a City, which was really popular. And, you know, I was pretty active in the comments trying to help people. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to create my own subreddit so I can help people. Uh, so we took a poll and, and behind the screen came up, uh, which is funny because I always call it a shield, not a screen. It's more evil. But so we started that and um, we were open for like two years and then we created DM Academy um, to sort of take the, the bulk of the, of the questions that were coming through because there was a lot of repetition, which is natural when you're new. That's fine. Uh, but I wanted to sort of split it out so that behind the screen was going to be an archive, like a library you could go into and grab all kinds of cool stuff. And DM Academy would be like, you know, the lobby of the game store where you're hanging out with your friends and you're all talking and discussing. Yeah. And then I opened DM Toolkit, which was for, supposed to be for multimedia. Um, I opened D&D Adventure Writer, which is just for writing adventures. I opened PC Academy, which is the player character version of DM Academy. Yeah, it's been fun. I mostly I mostly stick to behind the screen now. That, that's, there's plenty to do there. So the other subreddits pretty much run themselves. Okay. Boy is, uh, boy, is there ever plenty to do there. Um, so you've created yeah. all these subreddits. You're now doing one-on-one uh, -on -one DM advice calls and workshops. 
and you've got a prolific WordPress site and a Patreon. So then life changed a bit for you personally. Things kind of exploded for you in a pretty amazing way. Can you walk us through how that happened? So, like, um, been having trouble finding work. Oh, you know, my recent experiences from Australia. Um, been working temp jobs, but, you know, slowly, slowly running out of money. Um, and had some family situations where I thought I was going to maybe be out on the street. So I posted a post and said, look, I don't have time to run the sub. I need some mods. Can you guys help me out? And sort of people said, don't you have a Patreon? I'm like, yeah, but I got like four people and I charge like a dollar. So like I just got flooded with comments and then somebody posted it to the best of subreddit and then Matt Mercer picked up on it and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Kind of changed my life, really. I kept crying. I kept crying tears of gratitude for a couple of days. Um, I was just overwhelmed by, by the love and the support. It was it was absolutely amazing. Um, all, all the kudos should go to them, to the community. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's Reddit magic right there, and that's why those communities are so powerful. But it's definitely something that happens because of a lot of work put in. Like you're absolutely right; it is the community that made that happen. But, and I think that's that's the thing is that people won't get behind necessarily somebody that doesn't deserve it. Like you've, I feel like you've had this coming for a long time with just this incredible body of work and it's it's now paying some dividends and it's giving you some you know some support for what you doing what you really love to do you know i definitely worked hard i got passion for it I, you know i wanted the place to be amazing and i sort of wasn't going to compromise on my vision uh what dms should do with their own worlds as well don't let players push you around <laughs> um stick stick to your guns um you know yeah i worked hard and and it's it's been amazing um i feel like I can devote a lot more of my free time to doing something I love and I'm getting something out of it, which is just like a dream come true, really. It's like Christmas all over again. And I think the D&D community is getting a lot out of it, too. Uh, hopefully, yeah. That's the idea. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on? So I wrote this book called The Big Book of Rogues, which is an 88 pages. Uh, rogue archetypes, city life prisons, street gangs, um, tons and tons of missions for rogues. It's, you know, really geared for that sort of urban rogue experience. Uh, Druids are my second favorite class, so I'm going to do a Druid book. It'll probably come out in a couple months. I've got a couple of podcasts I'm working on. I'd like to do some more DM workshops. I did one in person, which was quite fun. Uh, it's really, it's all about marketing yourself. And, you know, admittedly, I'm pretty bad at that. I'm not a very good capitalist, but... There's a lot of people out there who want to help me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on them. And yeah, I can't wait to dig into that rogue book. It seems like you've put so much research into it, and I'm running a campaign in a city that I think that's really gonna help with. And speaking of some of your crazy good resources, let's move on to talk about one of our favorites in our next segment, Moradin's Forge. This is Moradin's Forge, where raw materials are reshaped into tools and weapons for the most incredible of quests. All right, so this is Morden's Forge, where we're going to talk about a resource that's available on your Reddit. Uh, it's a six-sheet campaign builder that has tons of great ideas, and we were hoping that you could run us through that. We're a big fan, obviously, of lists and point and step-by-step and just do this and get this done, and then all of a sudden you've got something awesome for yeah. your campaign so simplification and this is the biggest concept in D, &D which is creating a world and a campaign and 
parsing it down to some steps that you can take. So, And Hippo, I think we'll get your input on this as well. But what we initially loved about this whole kind of building process was, you know, the I'm not sure how much uh, experience you've had with some of the pre-written adventures and, you know, props to Wizards of the Coast to do all of the, the awesome work that they do with the campaign books. But absolutely, they can sometimes <clears throat> be a real challenge like you as a DM have to just do a lot of work to really soak in all of this pre-written information, whereas it might sometimes be quicker to just write your own campaign and follow these steps that you've provided. Yeah, I mean, when you're writing it yourself, then you know everything. The thing that scares a lot of DMs with world building is sprawl, and I know I'm guilty of that myself. So that's why I wanted to do this sort of quick snapshot on how you can get a campaign up and running without um, succumbing to too much sprawl. Uh, because I think sprawl is great when you go downwards into depth and not outwards into shallow width, which is why I talk about layers and layers. You know, you keep creating layers to the things you build and make them deeper and richer. Um, and one night I was sitting in, in, you know, it was probably 3 a.m. and I'm like, like, there's got to be a way I can boil this down. It's just a simple, like, bang, bang, bang. And I, I read a lot of my sketches and, and ideas and stuff on this blank typing paper because I try to get away from the keyboard as much as I can. And I was looking at it, and I'm like, and I was writing down level one or level zero questions. And I flipped it over, and I'm like, well, what's next? And I was like, well, you know, you got to deal with your relationships next. And I realized I had sort of written notes across six sheets of paper. I'm like, you can do this. Like, this is going to work. So... I thought, all right, well, let's write this up and see how well I can translate the process of what I just did into something that somebody else can use. And I took a shot in the dark, and, and that seems to have resonated, so that makes me pretty happy. <laughs> you don't know how the hive mind's going to react. So, <laughs> Yeah, so let's, uh, let's start at uh, sheet one or level zero. One of my favorite things about okay. level zero was that it creates the base of a campaign being about the characters. So just real quick, right. if I can, yeah. here's the the notes that I've made, it starts with 10 questions about uh, the early life of a character. And you do these one-on-one -on -one with each character. You play out a scene yep. from those questions. You ask then 10 questions about the maturing life and play out a scene based on that as well. So what is the, the result when you really get down to it and you kind of start to dig into a player's backstory? Honestly, I would say those 20 questions are probably more than a lot of players that I've seen ever kind of put into their backstory. Like it's always just this kind of concept and I go here and then I did this and then I did that. But like those are really kind of getting to the heart of a character. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a unique idea. Like, you know, um, I would ask a few questions. Uh, when I got into Reddit, I saw that there was like these really rich and deep long player questionnaires i'm like these are really cool but some of these have like 100 questions on them can we let's boil it down to sort of the essence what's great about level zero is you can you know you're playing out the backstory instead of having them hand you a sheet you know you get to know the character really intimately the character gets to know the character really intimately you can both have some role-playing moments without people staring at you and feeling awkward and you get to build this rich deep life and you can use all that stuff that you've come up with that the players come up with and you know you can hook that into any part of your world building that you want so, you know, I wrote, my favorite part is asking a player about, tell me about three enemies that you have, three people that don't like you and why, what's happened? You know, what caused that relationship? And, you know, some of them can come back later on in the campaign. Maybe they're a, maybe they're a villain. Maybe they're still a nobody, but they're just an asshole and they're going to wreck your life. Or maybe you never see them again. Or maybe they go off and do something secondary in the world that doesn't directly affect you, but indirectly affects you. And by asking questions, the player is 
is building world stuff for you and any kind of help you can get, damn, I say go for it. Yeah. And I also, Absolutely. I also really like the, the fact that playing out those scenes probably lets players role play a lot more comfortably based on what they've already role played instead of feeling like yeah. they shouldn't bring that up. Yeah. And it creates a character that's not just one dimensional. They're not black and white. You know, when they're faced with the situation and they, they can think to themselves, hey, I actually have a foundation on which I can make my decision that's based on some actual history and some depth instead of I came from this village and I decided to, to chase the call to adventure. I don't really know how I'd feel in this situation because I don't really know except because I only wrote three paragraphs on the guy. Yeah, It gives the characters a much more interesting experience while they're playing, and especially if you continue to ask questions to them throughout the campaign. I played a session of The Burning Wheel with a friend of mine, and what an amazing RPG. But during the session, he stopped and he looked at me and he said, how do you feel about what's going on right now? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, tell me what your character's thinking about. Like, how do you feel about your party companions about what just happened? And I was like, I was blown away by that concept. I'm like, I have no idea. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. But he kept asking me questions. And I realized that I needed to have a much more rich internal life with my character than I was currently having. And my DM world changed after that. I'm like, the more you ask questions of your character, the more they can get to know themselves the better experience you and they are going to have. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. And one of the other things that kind of jumped out about that level zero, about asking some of those player questions is also figuring out alignment in a natural way. Because I find that players yeah. always have this moment two months into playing a character where they go, oh, I'm totally not the alignment I thought I was. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's super important. And the funny thing is, is I started doing this because I had the opportunity to. I'm like, I'm like, I want you to come over early and we'll, you know, we'll talk about your character for a couple hours. And it kind of turned into this process just sort of organically. And I was like, I need to do this again. Mm -hmm. And I just kept doing it and kept refining it. And yeah, it worked out really well, I think. Awesome. I don't do it with every group. Hurting cats is, is difficult at the best of times. So so your your next step is the relationship map. Walk us through that real quick. Right. So when the character's talking and they're telling you, friends, family, and kind of want to write this all down so that you understand the relationship between all the characters. So D&D &D is like any narrative. The, the important stuff, the, the interesting stuff is the drama. You can sort of start to make connections between these people. Maybe, you know, maybe the PC's best friend and their dad don't like each other. You know, how's that going to change the character's life? So I think it's really important you just draw up a little quick little flow chart and start thinking about the connections that you want to make. And you can use that in future world building as well. You can hook these back into any part of the narrative. You know, maybe the character's a thousand miles away and they're in some big city doing something and they get a letter from their uncle saying, hey, remember your best friend, Mikey? Well, him and your dad had a fight and sorry, Mikey killed your dad or whatever. It just, it creates this much more rich because you're always doing these callbacks to their life and it makes it feel a lot more real. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's important. And I, I would assume that it's really easy to track other details of those NPCs on that kind of visual representation. Yeah, I mean, I do it because, you know, I'm a dumbass and I, I need help. So I just write these little flowcharts sort of whenever I can. It sort of works for me. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to the third one, which is the area map. Yeah, so I call these maps that I draw, um, I think of them as airplane snapshots. So like when you look out of the, the window of an airplane and you look down, the land that you can see is about as big as a starting map as I draw. I you know, decide on an area that I, want, that I want to work on next, and I just start drawing. I think about like the theme and the tone and what part of the world and ecology and the temperature and the climate and all that stuff. And I think, all right, well, I'll do, I'll do a desert section. 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty organic about it. I'll just be like, all right, well, let's, I'll, I'll write a list of all the cool things that I want. Like what's cool about a desert, you know, write down temples and scorpion people and, you know, flaming lava pits and whatever. And I'll just write this massive list of ideas and then I'll look through it again and be like, all right, well, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. And I'll just start dropping stuff onto the map. Okay. And sort of while I'm doing that, I'm, I try to make these sort of organic connections and like, all right, well, I've got the temple here and the scorpion people live over here. Do they interact? You know, uh, and I don't necessarily write that down at the minute, but I just let all these connections start to bubble up in my head as I'm drawing them out. And I think it sort of frees you from how do I make sensible connections between this and the rest of the world? Well, the rest of the world exists, yes, so don't freaking worry about it. Just worry about what you can see and make what you can see interesting and layered and connected and deep. And then the rest of the world building will sort of inform that as you go because you've got this really foundation on which to base everything else on as you start drawing it in all four other cardinal directions. Yeah, I like that, creating that good foundation. And I also liked that even in that section, for the, those of us that aren't as good at freewheeling, you included another list of, if you're having trouble, think of three areas of civilization, three natural features, one or two mysteries, and two areas that are unexplored. Yeah, I base my world, my map building on, um, did you guys ever play Diablo 2? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know how the map had all these really cool names with dungeons and all stuff like that, and I just really like that. I, I was never the kind of DM that wanted blank maps. I'm like, I want you to look at the map and go, "Wow, look at all the stuff there is to do." Be curious, um, and yeah. So the, yeah, so like I have wrote this post called "The Map Tells Me," and it's this method I have where I just write down stuff on the map, and I don't know what it is. I just think it's an interesting name or an interesting idea. Like I'll write down, you know, the Yellow Box Institute. I have no idea what that is, and maybe I won't know for a while. But in the future, I might need a place. I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's at the uh, Yellow Box Institute. Yeah, that's where you guys need to go. And suddenly it becomes a thing. It's sort of quantum world building, if you want to look at it like that. Yeah, I like that um, approach. That's cool. And so that's the reason for the, the mysteries and the natural features. You know, you want a nice mix of, of things that you want to you want the players to go look at you want them to to want to explore i guess and when you have an interesting map with all kinds of interesting things then that's sort of natural absolutely so that kind of leads into those uh regional relationships on your sheet four yeah this is probably the most complex and longest section but it's sort of the most satisfying it's really the most important because you need to figure out who all the players are in the region, like all the different factions. And because all that stuff is going to make the world seem interesting and real. And it's going to give your, your players, you know, allies and enemies naturally based on who they are. So in the post, I've got a list of, of governments that I took from the first edition DMG because it's an amazing list. And, you know, sort of use that as my top level uh, faction building. Like, I want to figure out the governments. I want to figure out the sort of the two power players in generally any society is the state and the church. So, I kind of like to start with those. And I use dice for a lot of things. If I can't make decisions, I ask a d6 or a d20 or something. Um, and I sort of organically think about all right, well, who's here and how do they feel about each other? Sometimes I'll roll alignments for these factions. As I said, I like to use alignment in world building. It gives me sort of a broad snapshot of the philosophy that's sort of prevailing within the culture. And that gives me, that informs all kinds of world building as well. Because, you know, a lawful good sized society versus a chaotic evil one is going to be quite different. So, um, but it's also interesting if you, if you have like a lawful good 
society and you might dice up some factions around them that are all like maybe neutral evil and that suddenly changes how they're how that faction is going to see the rest of the world and all their connections and stuff as well so each time you drop a piece onto your little chart that sort of changes everything and if you do it one by one you sort of get these organic connections and you start seeing stories and connections between them. It's all part of doing layers upon layers upon layers. Right. And um, you're also basing that, that off of those questions from the characters in the first step, which I really absolutely. liked that because I'm often sitting there trying to think, okay, what kind of faction am I going to use? Well, you just pull from what you've already done. You know, and I draw flowcharts for these things. You know, sometimes I do a master flowchart where I'll have the faction map answer of all these that I know about. They all tie in. Those can get kind of busy. Um, but because you're the one creating it all, you're not reading a module and trying to memorize it. Um, you know, it's easier to remember. You know, you've got all the all the all the weird webs and connections in your head, even if the players don't always see it, which is which is great. Sounding confident, you want to be a paladin of story. Yeah. <laughs> paladin of story, I like so, that. And you've got tons of guides for more detail on some of the things that you cover in sheet four. But then you move on to sheet five, which is local encounters. And this, when yes. I read it, opened a mental door for me, seriously. The picking the six creatures Beautiful. and how they interact with the world. I love that. It's funny because Gary Gagax in, his, in the first edition DMG, uh, he said, you know, you build the world and you drop all the creatures in and figure, figure out how. And then the players arrive. And I was like, What? So it's not it's not you custom building the world to the player's level. It's not that video game thing where, you know, the monsters closest to you are the weakest and the ones furthest away from you are the strongest. It's this, it's a real place and you're sort of dropped into this real place that's already built. So the idea of building these ecologies, which is what I call them, um, that's my favorite part of world building. I absolutely love it. I've written a bunch of posts about it. You know, you might dice up a dragon, a hill giant, some flumps, a gibbering mouther, and some nilbogs and you're like how am i how are these guys all coexisting in this area and trying to figure that out is what suddenly like it just becomes super interesting and then that all hooks into all the factions that you've built how are they responding to all of that and it, it just basically builds itself you can't help but see connections you can't help but be inspired by your own random rolling you know what i mean it's like magic I, I, i'm blown away every time it happens this is so cool and like all i did was write down six months you know that's yeah that's such a such a cool step especially for new dms to have some of those doors open for them to say you know what this isn't an impossible task trying to build my own world uh doesn't have to be this this yeah. i yeah. mean you you amaze yourself about how easy it is i'm just gonna write stuff down and let's see what happens um, yeah. and you're gonna make tons of mistakes i mean that's one of my dm things to be tattooed on my forehead get right with failure because you're gonna fuck up but that's just part of the learning process, you know, but the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And, you know, this all feeds into like, when you build these regional encounters, this feeds into this idea that I've been pushing for years between having active encounters and passive encounters and making them rich enough and interesting enough that, that the party either wants to interact with it or doesn't, but that, you know, at least you've given them a, a little snapshot that's at least interesting and not, you haven't written down on your encounter sheet orcs. Cause I mean, I used to do that. I would just write down, you know, orc, ankeg, empty cabin, you know, creepy church or whatever. That doesn't tell me anything. If, if I roll it on my on my list at the table, I suddenly have to world build in the moment. Like, shit, that's bad sometimes. So you should write hooks that have a little bit of story going on. 
And I like to write active ones, which is the things the players can't avoid. That's stuff like being ambushed. Passive encounters, which is stuff they can avoid if they want to. So they might see a farmer getting attacked on the road by a bunch of orcs. They can decide to intervene or not. They have the choice. Um, and a nice mix of those makes life on the road more interesting. Because I know a lot of DMs hate the random encounters, um, and I understand why. But you need to make the random encounters interesting enough that they're not just filler. They're part of the world. It's stuff that's going on. And the reason I started doing that, uh, again, going back to video games, is I played Fallout 3. And I'm roaming through the wastes, and there's a raider fighting a death claw, And I was like, the world doesn't need me. It's got its own thing going on. And I was like, that's how D&D needs to be. I adopted this mantra of the world does not give a fuck about you. And so stuff's going on has nothing to do with the party. And they realize that the world is alive. That's really quite amazing. Yeah. Just to put a spin on that, you know how players, well, that's how my character would act? Well, the DM version of that is that's how my world would act. <laughs> you know? so. That's great. Oh, I'm going to use that. People start complaining. <laughs> You wrap it up with the uh, regional events, so you kind of take each group and flesh out a few date-based. Yeah, it's kind of like a it's like a, a global event chart because I like to say, like I said, I like the world to have its own thing going on. This is a kind of all the background stuff that the players might not necessarily know about, but it affects the world and it's going to affect the future. So I like to um, take all the factions, write down some things that might be happening in the future based on their connections to other factions and sort of any story ideas I might want to throw in because, I mean, I don't really write plot, but I definitely have lots of creative ideas of things that I'd like to see happen. So I like staying small. I like staying in little regional places. And the global events, they can take over the narrative sometimes, which isn't always a bad thing. But for me personally, I always have to rein myself in a little bit. And I like to build global events with dates on them or triggers. So like if the party talks to X faction, then this, you know, A, B, and C will happen with these other factions. So again, that's more about, you know, player choice has ramifications that they may not know about. Yeah, and if you at least have a few ideas for what can happen, that you can pull those out when you need it and it adds to the world. So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Even and, if it's not perfect. And right, and as those events trigger, they'll you know, you'll think of other ideas, the events that come off of that trigger and it sort of snowballs. It's all about the web of life. <laughs> in a perfect world there is a D&D college somewhere and this is a 10-day master class on campaign building so <laughs> I would encourage anyone enjoying this segment here to actually seek out the post and all the others relating to it man I was yeah, going down a rabbit hole yeah there's bits and bobs sort of all over the place but I try to categorize it together but yeah there's a fair bit to read it's good toilet material <laughs> well, right, i prefer uh, to have a pencil and, pa and paper but, um yeah so that, thanks for running through that with us we're going to move on to our final segment here this is the strategy stateroom where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most We are going to talk a little bit about, uh, so Hippo being a, a moderator and uh, creator of a lot of these DM subreddits uh, focused on a lot of strategy and, and things like that. But what I think comes up a lot is probably some problems that DMs usually face. And so we're going to try and tackle uh, some of the top three 
issues that uh, that come up on Reddit that people are looking for help for. So the first one is how to solve personal conflict at the D&D table between players, DMs, just kind of that that general. Because that's where most horror stories that I've read seem to come from. Yeah, break out the popcorn. It's an issue. Look, I've had a lot of bad experiences. I've been the cause of some of those bad experiences <laughs> as a DM and a player. And I, I think a lot of the issue stems from, and this is going to sound bad, but your friends aren't always people you should play with. Friendships break up. I've seen marriages break up over D&D. I think the main thing is that you need to play with people who trust and who trust you. I mean, that's going to choose. Um, but people need to realize that, you know, you're the referee and somebody has to lead and not you. And it's sort of your responsibility to make sure if there's harmony at the table and if there's a disruptive influence, then it's your job to try and deal with that in a respectful manner to all parties involved, if possible. Because the health, health of the group is what's important, which I think. I think that's Use it. the chart. Yeah. <laughs> the famous chart. We, I think for for some of those folks as well, like the the challenge is, is that you sometimes have to put it to the players to kind of police themselves. And, you know, a DM isn't right. necessarily supposed to have to also be a counselor. Yeah, you're not a babysitter. But on the flip side, a DM has a position of power. And although the players tend to they look do. to look to the DM to solve those kind of issues. And I think one of the it tips does. that we have come across is actually from our father who does a lot of classroom work and every time he walks into a brand new classroom he'll say okay listen we're all gonna I'm not gonna lead this conversation we're just gonna have an open discussion about our needs and our wants and he'll turn it to to the actual class to say what's important to you showing up on time great that goes on our list and then he hangs that list in the classroom for the duration of the class for the entire class to start policing themselves. That's amazing. That's genius. Um, you know, you sit down, you talk about setting, theme, tone, and you know what's off the table, and you make sure that everybody's on board with what you want to what you want to do in the narrative. You got to have that conversation, and everybody's got to be on board. And that's why, you know, if 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 you're going to join a group and the DM says just show up on the day and we'll start playing, I wouldn't join that group. You need a group that's going to have a session zero, that's going to talk about what you're going to do and, and make sure the DM is being responsible. It's definitely a position of power and it can easily be abused. I mean, I've done it and I've seen it done to me. Totally. Helps just get to know people first too. I was just thinking those session zeros, other than setting the ground rules, like you said, I feel so uncomfortable going into a group of people I don't know to start role-playing right away. <laughs> I mean, I, I met a couple of guys in Australia off of uh, LFG, and I hit a home run. I knew in five minutes these guys were going to be friends of mine for life, you know. But I've met other people who were drop kicks, so it's just <laughs> yeah. really it's a crapshoot. You got you to be really choosy. And I have this thing that I say, where you, you should DM for the people that you want to DM for, not for the people who want you as a DM. And all that means is you should hand, you know handpick your groups as best as you can. I mean, sometimes we don't have that luxury. We got to play with our idiot friends. But if you can <laughs> handpick your group, you know, do so absolutely. Awesome. The next DM challenge is how to handle accidentally overpowered parties. I've done this too many times where I give out too many magic items and then I don't know how to give them a challenge yep. anymore. Yeah, I've been there. It's it's easy to be Santa Claus. Christmas for everybody. It's like Oprah. Everybody gets a plus five Holy Avenger. And you get a plus five Holy Avenger. 
It's, it's difficult and I've done it a lot. Um, I think what's great about 5e and the, the way that you can really cut down on that is a very, very simple thing. And is that you make all your magic items either have charges or they function X times per day. So you're giving out the candy, but you're limiting how many times they can eat it, so to speak. And you can make charges expensive. You can make them more difficult to come by. However, if you've already effed up and done that, honestly, the best thing to do is if you have a good and just say to them, look, I fucked up. Um, I gave you guys way too much stuff. You're really overpowered. I'm struggling. Would you guys mind if we removed or you know, nerf some of these magic items? A lot of the groups that I've, I've said that to have agreed. Some don't. You know, In my power monger days, I would just steal stuff from the party because nothing motivated the party like having their stuff stolen. Yeah. <laughs> you can have the party do literally anything. You can get them to go to the moon if you tell them their stuff's up there. <laughs> they will go get it. Find a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite way to kind of rein in, or not, 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 not necessarily rein in, like you said, whoops, I fucked up. Okay, now where are we going from here? Is that there's right. always a story that can be played out in some cases where, like I remember a specific campaign where the players came across an unholy amount of money. And when... Oh, that's easy. Yeah, there's so much that can be done with that. And that can turn into a campaign of itself as what the fuck do we do with this money? How do we protect it? How do we move it? And that can be done, I think, with magic items too, is if you have, absolutely. like you said, a plus five Holy Avenger, somebody else wants that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have a funny story from when I was a player. Um, my DM mentor, a guy named Dennis, we were on this quest, it was me and a friend of mine, uh, to go kill this green dragon. <clears throat> and he was in this uh, temple. And the temple had these 200-foot-high one foot thick solid gold doors and we got to the temple and we looked at each other and we're like screw the dragon let's take the doors <laughs> so we went back to town and we hired all these horses and wagons and pulleys and stuff and we went back and we dismantled one of the doors and dragged it back to town and that was like three months of campaign we kept getting attacked we kept getting bogged down in the mud we kept having people steal from us and scam us and lie to us and I wrote a post about this a while ago. I said, if you want to have a good time, have your party wake up from the camp and there's a pile of 1 million gold coins in, in a meadow next to them and just see what they do. Like, sit back. You don't have to write any plot. Just sit back and see what they do. Yeah, like, how are they going to get this money back? Like you said, how are they going to keep it safe? Having too much money is never a problem. Taxes, ties, tolls, fees, and tariffs are the way to bleed money off your players. I mean, if you're <laughs> in a city, you got to pay to play. You gotta you gotta pay fines when you screw up. You gotta buy weapon licenses. You gotta pay import fees. I mean, you can you can always take money. That's not a problem. <laughs> so the the final question that we have here, and I'm not sure what what your games typically look like, but I've I've seen it come up a lot. It's come up in our games. Um, how to handle distraction okay. with digital tools? Just ban them. <laughs> That's simple. No funds at the table. Simple. A huge chunk of some of our parties now, they always have people that have their character sheets on their phones. So then it's just a issue of trusting the person to be looking at D&D-related things rather than... And then you start seeing their thumb scroll and you know that they're not looking at their character sheet anymore. But you're right. Yeah, them, that's, making that's them go good. to paper. Um, yeah, I think it just goes back down to trust. Now, I'm not here to entertain you. You're here to entertain yourselves. I'm just here to facilitate that. So if you're wasting your time and my time and everyone else's time, should you really be here? Kind of thing. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Any other big issues that come to your mind? 
Uh, yeah, the biggest issue I, I, I see is players show up and they cross their arms and they have this look on their face like, well, DM, entertain me. I provide the stage, the lights, the music, the props, but the scripts, that's all you, baby. <laughs> I, I think a good player is someone who's got curiosity and who's willing to play ball with the DM and kind of roll with what he throws at them. And I see far, far, far too many passive players. You have to give a shit. Like, this game is not passive. There is no, I don't care. You're in or you're out. So that's sort of the biggest thing that I say that still irks me. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, that gets under my skin once in a while, too. And and you can only do so much as a DM to try to draw them in with this or that. But you're right. Players, be curious. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's that goes back to, you know, your point of having a session zero, choosing the right players to play with. You know, it's the it's the DM's right. choice. It's their world. They're going to be the director of this of this play. So, well, that is good a point as any to uh, to start to wrap this up. I got a lot out of that. Heck, yeah. I'm so glad it was useful. Yeah. Well, I hope it was uh, it was enjoyable for you as well. Yeah, super fun. That was great. Let's do this again. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. We could do probably 30 hours of this. <laughs> uh, thank you, Famous Hippopotamus, for joining us. Shout out to the behind-the-screen community. You guys are awesome. Thanks for everything. What have we learned? Well, we got an idea of the journey of this epic DM and where he's come from and what he's doing next. Boy, there was a lot of takeaways. Holy shit, there's just so much in world building and it can be so much simpler than I think DMs usually want to make it. Absolutely. I usually think that I have to make something equivalent to Earth. That is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the airplane view was a, a really helpful point. And I think the biggest is world and lore build more like that fearsome majestic river creature the hippo like the hippo builds his den the hippo's den yeah they um like beavers they turn their surrounding waters into pudding and they make a <laughs> den in it and that's why they're so pudgy and lovable okay well come to this podcast for dm tips not for nature facts jordan's nature facts <laughs> it's a it's a sister podcast <laughs> Again, thanks, Famous Hippopotamus, for joining us. You can find his work on Reddit and on his Patreon. His Patreon is absolute fire, so go check it out. And as per usual, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Hook and Chance. Come see our website at hookandchance.com and take a look at our Patreon if you feel like supporting this show that you're hearing. And as per usual, all of the sound effects for this podcast was created using Tabletop Audio. Thank so you. definitely go check out more of Tabletop Audio and use it in your games. And none of this would be worth doing if you weren't listening. So thank you for listening. And, and play, play great, great games. games.